You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, I'm John Spirasavet, and I'm here with Julie Levine. Hey, Julie. Hi, John. It is great to meet you because of the good place. Yes. Where are you doing your work in Jewish life right now? So I do my work in Jewish life at a synagogue in the East San Fernando Valley. And today I am working from the home office in Northridge, California. Which of the Good Place main characters do you think you're most like as of today? I often feel like I'm way more of an Eleanor, just simply because I guess whether it's imposter syndrome or whatever it is, I always think that I'm way worse of a lot of things than I appear to others. And then sometimes, you know, I get that moment of surprise when I find the emotions and the other things. But ideally, I think I think that I would really enjoy being a Janet. You would be in, you would enjoy being a Janet. How come? I would enjoy being a Janet because I think that Janet out of everybody and of course she's the one who's not a human was the most surprised by her own transition because though nobody expected her to be anything other than, you know, not a cyborg really, that every time she was rebooted and the more that she took in as an AI, she became not just more intelligent like quantitatively but she developed an emotional intelligence that was just incredible i i also i think i've uh, consistently said that i wish i was more of a janet so do you have a, a good place origin story how you started to get into the show this was something that my husband and i just started watching together it sounded interesting and i remember that it was a time that it seemed like TV shows about God and theology got really popular all of a sudden. Like there were a whole bunch of shows that were all on major networks. But this one, I think we hung on to the longest because it would take us 30 minutes to watch the show. And then we could easily talk about it afterwards for an hour because of pulling apart the theology and pulling apart our feelings. And so many times my husband would say, well, they've painted themselves into a corner this time. And it was always a, a, a surprise. And I mean, this is one of those shows that I feel like I could watch over and over, and it's always going to hit differently. So how, do you know how many times you've watched it through? I, I have honestly no idea because then I also started listening to the podcast to so to the other Good Place podcast to hear them breaking down the show and listening to all the characters and listening to all of the people who worked on the show and talk about the things they did and all the little inside jokes. So there was all of that. And of course, the other thing that kept us watching so much is uh, I actually grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and some of the jokes just really just stuck and were amazing. And um, <laughs> and so part of our discussions was explaining to my husband what was and was not real. So is there something uh, authentically Jacksonville you can say? <laughs> Absolutely. So his love for the Jacksonville Jaguars was very real. The whole episode where he found out that Blake Bortles was no longer the quarterback <laughs> was riot. The fact, the whole, you know, the the Duval, Jacksonville kind of adopted that. And then when they 
put him on the sidelines and had him doing a lot of like social media and whatnot when they were, I think, in the playoffs a few years ago. I mean, that that was it. It was very like quintessential of like the diehard Jags fan who just is unwilling to accept the fact that and apologies to if there's still any loyalists out there that they are as bad as they are. That is great. <laughs> and I love, by the way, that you referred to the uh, official NBC well-produced, very popular podcast as The Other Good Place. <laughs> I will say I, go- I Googled this one recently. I-, I think I Googled Good Place podcast and did find that about the first 20 uh, re- were many different references to that podcast, which I've often talked about on this one because I love it so much. And then yeah. actually this one popped up once in a Google search on the third page or something. So we're, we're going places. Yeah. <laughs> So we're here to talk about Chapter 18, Existential Crisis. And Julie, you want to give us the summary of the episode? Ah, yes. Existential Crisis. So Chidi thinks that Michael's immortality prevents him from caring about ethics since he would never have to worry about consequences. So he asks Michael to think about retirement, leading Michael into a paralyzing existential crisis. Eleanor flashes back to her own memories about the death of her dog and her father, and the feelings she suppressed until an encounter with a family toothbrush holder at Bed Bath & Beyond. Michael then moves from existential crisis into midlife crisis, complete with red sports car and dressing Janet up as a ditzy blonde named Jeanette. Eventually, Eleanor explains to Michael that humans reconcile with mortality by not ignoring their sadness, and he comes out of his funk. Tahani, meanwhile, is being tortured by being forced to plan a party at the same time as the one that the demons are planning for Gunnar's birthday, but then Jason praises her and they end up sleeping together. All right. So was there anything you just particularly loved about this episode? I mean, look, there's nothing like a great epiphany happening in the middle of Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, <laughs> I guess that's the beyond part is, you know, Ooh, the, nice. the, the moments of, of catharsis because Bed Bath & Beyond has certainly never been clear on what beyond is. <laughs> but I think that that right there, the, the we never know what's going to trigger, you know, like the floodgates being opened. So I thought that was interesting after seeing all of these moments where she was basically told, informed by her mother that really the only way to go through life was to not be sad. You know, first about her dog, and of course, you know, there was a rainbow bridge and a farm and, and everything else. And then at her father's, at, at the site, with, with her father in the open casket next to her, being told that not being sad was really the only way to go. And, you know, if you watch the rest of the show, Eleanor, in her past life, wasn't much for emotions. She didn't have a whole lot of them. And she just kind of set her emotions aside and just did things, which I guess is why she became an Arizona dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great it's a great play because of her range, I guess, as a character and, and how unexpectedly this... I don't think we've seen a kind of sadness or crying out of her before. There's a lot of crying in this episode, I guess. And I just am just like floored by the writers that, I mean, the gag with the toothbrush holder would have been great enough as it was, you know, parent brushes watching over them and they're talking about their toothbrush feelings, but then crying in the plunger was just... Yeah. 
<laughs> that was awesome. And and now as I'm thinking about it, there was it was really it was quite a little nice misdirection because uh, a scene or two before Michael had referenced the sharper image, which is yes. you know quite what what can't those guys ionize? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know who's who's paying who for product placement or uh, or rights on this one. I I don't know why I, I pay attention, but like I pay very close to product placement on shows, and so sometimes I see things that you know other people don't realize that are there. And so obviously, if they are using things that are very specifically referential, but also hyper generic, like Bed Bath and Beyond. Or, you know, sharper image, you know, the big, the big box store and the, you know, quirky box store, I guess you could call them. They're, they're there for a very specific reason. But I guess it was just, you know, the, the things that were like, just like unifying factors or whatever. Yeah, Bed Bath & Beyond is, I think, an interesting place. I, I think of it as a sort of this intermediate place, which I probably only go because of all the coupons. And because yeah. they're not they're not the lowest price for everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say half the time I go, there's something like not there that I expect, even though they should be the, the one store that has. Well, and- they're they're actually I think the Internet has put them like almost completely out of business. I know the one by my house has recently closed. And it's funny when you drive by because it has left behind what I call tan lines. They took the big plastic letters off of the front of the building that say Bed Bath & Beyond, but the outline is very definitely still there from, you know, years of, you know, paint oxidizing and phasing, fading. So, you know, you have the Bed Bath & Beyond tan lines that are there. And of course, in the off season, like every other large vacant box store, it became a Halloween store. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, you said it's like a medium, like, I wonder if Bed Bath & Beyond actually is the medium place. You know, for the most part, Ooh. there's nothing fancy. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just there. It's fairly reliable. I think you have the makings of, of quite a good uh, stand-up routine here. You are <laughs> you are in the greater L.A. area. <laughs> right, because there's no stand-ups in the greater L.A. area. I'd be like, whoo. So that's kind of sending me down a little uh, rat hole of specific, if not product-like organization placement, because Tahani references the 2008 Red Cross gala she mm-hmm. threw in Zurich, specifically the Red Cross. I don't think we knew what her charity was before from her right. or what some of those things were. And they said, no, 2007. Yeah. When I was watching the scene where Michael first internalizes the existential crisis he does this perfect impression of the munch is that how you munch the the, oh, the, scream. the, the scream yeah yes the record the yeah, you can't see but julie is like putting her hands by her face in the <laughs> yeah, classic oh my god he did just a brilliant representation of that well, that could go two ways so i guess depending on your demographic it was either munches the scream or it was kevin McAllister in home alone Oh, wow. So it was one or the other. <laughs> it was uh, it was definitely there and it would evoke, you know, one or the other sets of emotions for you. That whole scene, I mean, just the way Ted Danson executes that from the volumes of his shriek to... I wrote down that when, I think when Chidi is describing why this is good that, uh, or something about the silent indifference mm-hmm. of our empty universe, there's this slow Ted Danson, Michael takes this uh, kind of slow look up at him. <laughs> from his lap, which is yeah. just, I love watching him physically act, all of them really. The the other part though about that, that really hits. And when when Chidi says, well, imagine what, what retirement would feel like for you. I think about how so many people, 
their purpose and their job. All of that is so connected. And for some people, like the idea of being retired or, you know, whatever it is, it seems like it's going to be a gaping hole in you that's like so big. Will it ever be filled by anything else or will you implode? And so again, it was a very, very human moment because I think that right there was a really clear reflection and remembering that even though he's, you know, thousands and thousands of years old, his human form looks like somebody who might be the age of somebody in retirement. I've seen a few jokes and like sketches. I think that, oh, I think that Saturday Night Live spoofed this recently because Tom Brady announced after a whole 40-day retirement that he was coming out of retirement and coming back. And it was a sketch about, you know, what post-retirement would look like for him. And the actress who was playing Giselle was like, okay, so you're going to do carpool. You're going to do this. You're going to help me work on the kids' projects and everything. And he realized what it would be like and is like, oh, no, 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 I'm going back. But again, like I said, watching this a second time hits differently. I'm going through a career transition right now. Uh, After 20 years, I made the choice to leave my community because I, I need to grow And there's been a lot of ups and downs, but I had a couple of moments of like, what if I don't find anything? And what am I ever going to do with my life again? And I don't just want a job from nine to five where I'm just a cog. I need a purpose. And, And realizing that I'm one of those people and the work that I do is intentional and the choices that I've made, you know, to have more than just a job, to have a career. So much of my identity is tied up in that. And what would I do if I didn't have it? That's great. And I wondered if you related in a particular way to Michael's in the early scene there with uh, Vicky and the millennials, as he explains. Yeah, I think about even people who are just like, you know, who work, 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 that like they're bad at vacation. You know, (laughs) people who are bad at relaxing and bad at vacation because the notion of just fully separating is almost too much because then what if you know, something goes wrong and something happens and then I'm going to, you know, you know, like you think about people who take a vacation and they get back and they go back to work and they're like, well, now I need a vacation for my vacation because I'm exhausted because it's all that in the mindset of trying to, to, to catch up, not start over from the new point, but just to see him so paralyzed at the idea of having nothing and of course, what does it pull, push him towards? You know, the stereotypical red Corvette, blonde side piece, midlife crisis, as it were, and how that gets portrayed. I'm pretty sure that Vacation from My Vacation was something in the episode that we recorded out of order about Purim, where they go to the Museum of, what is it, Bad Human Behavior, and the first person to say, I need a vacation from my vacation. Yeah, I think you made reference before to Blake Bortles, and so I know that one of the ways that Michael has set up his Jeanette's, you know, is to say Mm -hmm. things like, one of her lines is supposed to be, how many quarterbacks in a home run? So I have to say, before we sort of deep dive even more into the theme of this episode, I do my rewatches kind of in two ways, partly with myself or with my older daughter and partly with my younger daughter, who is 14, who is just a, a sucker for all the like goofy lines and things like that. So I have to say, we we watch the, the scene where Eleanor is trying to talk Michael up initially from his crash and is, is trying to figure out if he, she could give him something to eat, a snack, you know. Yeah. Do you want, you know, what does it eat, babies? <laughs> want me to get you a big fat baby? What <laughs> what flavor? Cool. Do you want a cool ranch? Cool ranch baby. <laughs> cool ranch baby. <laughs> Got a big laugh here in the house. It's that Michael 
is just this walking dichotomy that he is human, but not human. He is, you know, this, but not that in, in a lot of ways. And knowing that like food is actually a really big part of the whole neighborhood and like all of the little places that they have that have like the cute punny food names and things like that. It's a big deal. And Michael also uses the food as a selling point. Like when he was giving tours of the neighborhood, like that was always a selling point. That is a great observation that I think we have not touched on yet. And I think we need either in Pick the Perfect episode, or maybe we might need to do like a special episode on mm-hmm. on food, especially around that paradox. And nonetheless, why food plays such a, a key role. You know, we have talked about how I referenced the, the Garden of Eden, which is kind of the Torah's first ethical dilemma. And it's built around food. And we don't usually even, th- we just think about it as did they obey or disobey and sort of gloss over the fact that it's about a, a fruit. Cool. But as you mentioned, Eleanor sees Michael in crisis and her knee-jerk reaction is, oh, let me get you something to eat. Every emotion is about, you know, food. Like when Tahani's trying to plan the party, it's making sure that the menu is this and I want you to channel this and that all of the little things. So whether it's the frozen yogurt place or the other things that evolved into or, oh, you're having a bad day. Let me get you food. It's, again, all of those human pieces and that we as humans when we have emotions or when we see other people having emotions, because sometimes that gets sticky, uh, especially if we're not good with our own emotions about how to, how to help other people, then you know I'm gonna give you something to at least try to fix you, not on the inside, because the inside would be like where the actual feelings are, but to help you know get you back to some sort of like physical balance. So I'm going to feed you. As I looked at the beginning of season two, before starting to map out a schedule for the podcast, we're in the fifth episode of the season, if you count the season opener as two. And a lot of it has been just kind of the work of getting the plot going to this point where Michael will be with the humans in this new way. But also the, the philosophical issues have not been as concretely about self-improvement, about chuva as we've been talking about, as they were in season one. And I've found it really both hard and interesting to try to figure out what the link is between some of these meta issues. So this idea of the existential crisis and whether being aware of it actually contributes to one's ethical life, I think is is a harder one. It's, you know, it's just not as practical to deal with, but is certainly an important Jewish question. And so you and I were talking a bit before we pushed record about where is this in in Judaism? And certainly one place that it is, is in the book of Ecclesiastes toward the end Mm -hmm. of the Bible, um, known as Kohelet in Hebrew. I I actually just referenced it the other day. I was doing an adult ed for our synagogue and it was on activism and slacktivism, you know, performative activism and how things have changed. And I I, I referenced that getting a concrete action is important. And so I said, you know, and maybe from Kohelet or somewhere, there's a time to fetch and a time to refrain from fetching. <laughs> you know, the part that people are most familiar with is to everything, there is a purpose, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And it shows kind of everything in opposite, a time to be born and a time to die and a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to dance and a time to sing. But just that whatever the thing is, there is a time and a space for it and just kind of trust, which I guess means that 
We live in this never-ending pendulum that, that swings back and forth and that keeps touching on all of the different points. And the book presents itself in a way. It starts off with an existential crisis. This guy mm -hmm. who calls himself Kohelet, the son of David, the king of Israel. So he's mm -hmm. trying to present himself as though he were a, a royal in ancient Israel. And, and he starts off with these observations that everything is basically nothingness. And what kind of place do we have, you know, as a speck in this universe? And then he tries to go through trying on different approaches to life, you know, to a sense of purpose, you know, creating things and wondering if they're going to last in the world or maybe just eat, drink and be merry, I think, because tomorrow you may die. And just as Michael kind of goes through the phases of response to the initial observation, Kohelet sort of rehearses and tries on different responses. And, and they're different ethical responses, certainly to try to be a, a builder or the just ruler of a nation is a different kind of project than to, you know, pursue just joy and pleasure or to sit in just acknowledgement, as you're saying, of the, the pendulum of life. You know, I, I just realized that when described that way, um, the musical Pippin brings up so much of that. You know, you have Pippin, who is the son of the king, and he is a, a expected to ascend and elevate to the throne. He's like, but what if I don't want that? And so he spends however much time he tries to see what it would be like to rule but there's all of this bloodshed and there's this and so he tries to live a pastoral life and then he runs into his grandmother which is basic who tells him you know go sow all your wild oats you know it's time to start living you know go get your kicks and so he tries that too and then he winds up helping out on a farm and then developing a relationship with a woman and also her son and everything else and then at the end he's given this dilemma okay what do you want to do next? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And this is a show that has multiple endings depending on on how it is because there is actually one ending when he basically dies. He chooses to go into the fire and be like, yep, okay. And then there's another one where he says, you know what? I have everything I need. Everything else is just things. So let's see what happens. You're talking about Pippin there as how oh. that's, that's really interesting because in the book of Kohelet too, there is this idea that there might be different endings, that there was kind of a, well, I don't have an answer for you ending. And then the book ends with this statement that we're not really quite sure. So I think that, you know, doing mitzvot and following God is, is what you should do as a response to all of this. And I was thinking about Michael at the end, Eleanor sits him down and basically, she manages somehow to bring him up out of his crisis. And I wonder what you thought of that. Did that ring true to you? It's interesting because, you know, being human, I like to think that I can control that. And I'm like, I'm just going to be at a place for as long as I can. And seeing that she wasn't willing to quit on, on Michael, which in some ways also meant she wasn't willing to quit on herself, but that she saw him as even though he is a demon and like everything he's done is about making other people suffer that he didn't need to suffer more than necessary. So I get resentful when I'm in a place where like, no, 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 I'm in my feelings right now. Do not try to pull me out. And when there is someone who is willing to stay by my side, to hold space, to sit in uncomfortable silence, to whatever it is, knowing that, you know, that it will pass and we will get to move on, that's really valuable. And I think that that was one of those moments where we start to see that Eleanor is definitely not all bad. 
You know, she makes this argument to Michael that your feelings are, we're always reacting to them, whether we're reacting to them directly or not. Mm-hmm. And she sees him running away from them and, and sees a reflection of herself. <laughs> it was, you know, it, in Bed, Bath & Beyond, she kind of figured it out for herself, I guess, or whatever. There was something which reflected a need in her that we've learned a lot about her mother and her father, <laughs> just how awful they were. And of course, we see a great portrayal of her mother in this episode, and she sort of gets that. But she says, you know, the feelings are a signal that, mm-hmm. yeah, something is wrong and out of kilter, but there is kind of a not constructive way to interpret them in a more constructive way. But it's interesting because she doesn't really make explicit her own interpretation of her Bed Bath & Beyond moment, except that it was good to get to catharsis and then move on, I guess. And all she says to him is, deal with it. I don't know, is she just saying like, if you just wallow in it, there's just, that's for sure oblivion. And if we want to have a chance of some moments that don't feel like oblivion, is that what she's trying to get at? I, I think so, because if you push it down and push it down and pretend like it never happened and pretend like you don't have feelings and everything else like that, again, the more that things are compressed, when there's finally like the opportunity to vent it, the bigger the explosion is going to. But also the more distance that a person gets, I think, from their feelings, I think they're then even less equipped to handle them when they finally do crop up. But one of the lessons that was there, I mean, looking at her background, it's, yes, we are all shaped by our experiences and that we are not only our experiences. We are not our parents. We are not only our our upbringing. And that if we make room for other things, that's where we can grow. And so again, it's the oblivion thing, because if we fill up our entire, you know, I guess you could say spiritual inside with just repressed and suppressed emotions and feelings, then yeah, there's no room for anything else to grow in there. But it speaks to the importance of taking action and of doing. And yeah, like we saw his pendulum swing all the way to the other side, but even still, eventually the middle ground does come back because it's I think also the reminder of where like life is that so often everything is just presented as it's this pole or it's that pole everything is an either or but that like life really life is a both and in a lot of ways growth begins just outside of your comfort zone and that the space in between the poles is so much greater like that's the majority I mean as an educator, I think about like the bell curve and, you know, here, here's your median. And then you've got one standard deviation, which is pretty wide. And then you get two standard deviations out. And sometimes we refer to the 80-20 rule, where there are times that 80% of your focus will be taken up by 20% of your class. And it's the people who are way on the outskirts who aren't getting their needs met for whatever reason. So they're very vocal or demonstrative about it. And how often the people in the middle who either have a minor struggle or are doing exactly what is expected of them and are just fine, get ignored. You're saying that makes me think about where you started with to everything there is a season and the, mm-hmm. which really does lay out the two sides of each pendulum. And mm-hmm. are you reading that as saying something like, you know, there's there's a, a time to laugh and a time to weep and a time to be sort of in a medium mood? The pendulum is swinging through all of it and it's okay to experience all kinds of things as a both and, not an either or. I, I am appreciating this because I am very much a conceptual 
person and want to have formulas even for tshuva. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing out some of the ways in which the emotional and existential side is really in service, not directly, not because it generates a formula. And it's making me think about there being really three conversation points toward the end of the episode that are crucial. There's one that corresponds very much to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, because Chidi says, when Eleanor's trying to say, like, what are we going to do? Like, if he's, we're we're all doomed if he's, if Michael Mm -hmm. won't snap out of this, what, you know, what does she say about the French? What, what boring, which of these boring French books can we give him to snap him out of this? And Chidi says, I I, believe it or not, even like, even I don't think that there's a book. And there's this uh, famous line from Kohelet, which says of the, the making of many books is without limit and much study is a wearying of the flesh and which is a really a lovely connection there. And then we have right before that is the statement that says the, I'm just leaving through it on the, looking at it, on the, I'm leafing through, it's on the screen. You can't really leaf through something. We need new metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> the sayings of the wise are like goads. And then it goes on, they were given by one shepherd. And just with your binary thing, I love this idea that, you know, here Eleanor being one of the wise people and Jason, as we're going to see too, yeah. they do kind of they're they're wise they push you along though but they're given in sort of like a a shepherd-like way i never really have quite see that verse understood that way and then it's making me now you're making me see the the final conversation that tahani and jason have where he's trying to explain to her why she's great and the two pieces of it are one this this whole thing about the scale from one to 13 where eight is the the highest there's your bell curve your it goes up and it goes down which is crazy but maybe as a way of saying yeah this whole measuring thing is kind of absurd mm-hmm. and it's not the way to look at it your aid is better than michael's 10 because yeah. you know you're the most amazing you know. well it almost then, yeah. shows the absurdity at trying to quantify goodness or, or, or ethics but again you know wasn't it it was season one where one of the ways that Tahani was being tortured was with the neighborhood points, with all of the things that she was doing and that she wasn't succeeding because so much of her life was trying to be recognized and be outstanding in a family of perfection, basically. And you look at her and she appears to be flawless, but clearly there's a lot of damage inside. And so she doesn't really know how to assess herself qualitatively. So Jason kind of gets to be her mirror. And she literally at the beginning when she's described, what does she say? Bowing down before Princess Grace's dress mausoleum. And she's about to make every event too much, that language. And and then she she goes to the, the next thing where she says, you know, I outdid, like she can't say I outdid myself, I I did myself, which is great. And then at the end, you know, Jason has this alternative scale of measuring. And then he also boils it down to something so simple. He says, be nicer to yourself. And I just, uh, uh, I don't know how I miss Jason so much, like the first time I watched through the show, I just keep talking about how much I adore him. There's so much of this episode that's a retreat from this high stakes thing that they're involved in without it feeling that way at all. I mean, this is such a fast paced, you know, it was, it was funny and fast paced, but you know, there are parties and party plannings and, yeah. uh, and I guess the you know, final uh, like office based conversations, just thinking about what you're saying about the, the need for that. They don't, you can't really describe them in a philosophical way. They sort of run 
on, mm-hmm. on this other track. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to put my finger on what I. This is like my own my own issue. I get it's the and it's what you're saying. The permission to 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 take a break into those places where you have to be nicer to yourself and change the question at least for a time. I guess part of for me the question is like. Should that always be the question? Is it always about be nicer to yourself and give yourself permission to to think yeah. about the deep and even troubling thoughts and then go through that? Or is that just a break you take from the overall yeah. struggle? It's always fascinating on this show, the ways in which they torture the humans. And one of the things they do is they attempt to strip away all the joy from things that brought them joy. So Tahani loved being a party planner. She loved putting on events. She loved having it so that every detail was attended to and everybody who was there felt great because they were there. They felt great after they left. So now, you know, that she knows this other party's being planned and she still has to go through, although Janet helps her, but still, still has to go through the motions anyway of doing it, even though she knows it's all for nothing. And it doesn't matter how great it's going to be that it's going to be for nothing and having to go through the motions of it. And it's not just like the going through, you know, the work. It's not like just they're playing a prank. It's it's that they are taking something that she really truly loves and sucking all of the joy about out it and saying, and you're going to do it anyways. Because of course, you know, they don't know that the humans know that they know because they don't know that Michael's a double agent yet and all of those things. But that was kind of like the most soul crushing. And if Tahani had been left to her own devices, how far would she have gone without Jason and everybody else keeping her in check? And how far would she have pushed herself? And would that have been like her ultimate undoing? I'm really glad that you said that because I've been thinking about Tahani. I've been waiting for that moment when we get in the show where I remember later on, probably in season three, the first time I watched it through, that I really felt much more understanding, I guess, or empathy and, and understanding of her particular version of the struggle. But I think what you're pointing out is that she, she, as much as Michael, is the center of this episode. In some ways, their struggle reflects each other. They both are construed as these uh, conventionally powerful people, you know, hers is riches and fame and all those kinds of things. And in parallel, I guess, both of those things are being stripped away. And she really says some very honest things about herself. Am I really this kind of person? And Michael doesn't go through that. And it's Tahani's in some ways is more authentic, because I think, okay, so existential crisis is the world like, I'm never going to know if if I'm real, or if I'm a speck in infinity, you know, so I'm not going to bother thinking too much about that. But Tahani has to deal with this real question. Am I so selfish and superficial that I would even plan a party? knowing nobody <laughs> was going to yeah. come. And it takes her articulating that to then be open to Jason telling her something else about herself. And she, she in some ways, is you know even better than Michael, plays this role or a piece of the role of Kohelet Ecclesiastes. I mean, Kohelet is presented in that book as a person who has the ability to throw any party he wants and everybody will come yeah. and will say that it's awesome. And then he'll say, but yeah, but it's it leaves me with an empty feeling. And mm-hmm. and I think she's maybe questioning too whether, because she probably doesn't have an empty feeling when she throws a great party and people come. She's happy when they're happy. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know if she was questioning or if she'll get to sort of question yeah. that. And there's a good side to the to the ability to do those things too. There's those are they're not. It's wrong to say that those are all yeah. bad things. Years ago, and I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, maybe it was like 2009, you know, so it's been a while ago. I had this need to go back to school. 
I'm like, I'm not feeling challenged. I need to do something. I don't know what I want to do. And the local community college had a course of study. They had a certificate program in addiction and addiction studies. And I'm like, well, I have a whole section of my bookshelf that appears to be about these things. Let's go. So I went to my very first class and it was a mix of people. And the instructor had everybody kind of introduce themselves. And a lot of the people in the class were former addicts. They were in recovery. Some worked in places. Some wanted to get their certificates so they could be certified addiction counselors. There was a few other people who had four-year degrees. There were people who had never done college, possibly didn't finish high school necessarily, or maybe got, you know, a completion exam and, you know, had been in jail. And the instructor starts telling us, here's where your grade is coming from. It is going to be on attendance and you have to do this many section reviews. Well, what's a section review? Well, you're going to read a section of the book and you're going to write your reaction response to it. Well, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from, you know, well-respected universities. And all I know how to do is those standards. And I'm like typed, double-spaced, MLA, APA, like all I know how to do because he's just, it's like, because people are like, well, how long? The section is as long as you want it to be. It doesn't have to go in order. I want you to read this book. I want you to find it interesting. And I'm like, type, double space, font, this, how many pages, how many words, da, da, da. And he looks at me and I'll censor myself. And he's like, just write the effing paper. And I said, I don't know how to do that. So in the end, I did them my way and other people did them their way because there were people who had no computers and they probably wrote them on spiral notebook, torn out of a paper, you know, with the, with the things hanging on, but they did them. And that was the point is he wanted us to do them in the way that made sense to us and not just in a performative way. But here I was being challenged with, you know, my own perfectionism and basically told that all of these standards that I once not only needed to adhere to when I was a student first time around, but that when I was an educator expected my students to adhere to, they were meaningless. That all of the performative pieces were irrelevant because he wanted us to just grasp a hold of the material and make it personal to us. Quite a shock to the system. Yeah. You know, again, it's just interesting that at the end that Tahani and Jason are having their moment and you've got Chidi and Eleanor kind of doing their thing. And so in the end, everybody is very separate. In fact, for a lot of the the episode, they are separate and there's not a whole lot of interplay. I mean, everybody shows up, you know, at the party and is like there and, you know, supporting Tahani. But it's very much with Jason kind of like coaching and helping her. And again, it's that that gleeful moment when Eleanor is like, oh, look, I'm the best in the class again. And it's like, you know, those weird moments. Every time Eleanor, even if it's like a low bar, every time Eleanor sees the opportunity to have a good feeling and see that in, you know, this afterlife, she's better than she was when she was on Earth. Even though sometimes they come off like sarcastic and, you know, by cheaty standards, they're, they're not. They're so important for her to say because she had this whole narrative, her whole understanding that she was, in her own words, an Arizona dirtbag. So every moment she has to be more than she was ascribed to be, they're really, really important for her to say out loud because she gets to hear herself saying, you know, I'm not just garbage. That's kind of what Jason is trying to help Tahani see because Tahani's low bar is other people's like never ever attainable bar and trying to help her see that just because it wasn't as perfect as you needed it to be in your heart 
doesn't mean that you're not incredible. I'm liking more and more sort of paralleling Tahani's and Michael's story in here. And it may be that Michael's story is is there to give Tahani's some depth, you know, because it, it definitely, in comparison, her story has a lot more depth. And, and even though the episode really by its title focuses on him, I guess in a way it doesn't. Maybe maybe existential crisis is as much about hers. And I fell for the debate the of thinking it was about this other thing, but really she's the one. And maybe what's happening or being depicted at least is that, you know, going through that kind of questioning, which is pretty soul-rocking, is necessary even though it hurts. So your reference to a couple musicals, we have to call out a parallel podcast called Versus. I've, I've listened to a few episodes and they were fantastic. And Versus is the podcast, if I remember correctly, where theater and Torah meet. And sometimes they embrace and sometimes they, they dance fight. But ultimately, it's where they join and where all the parallels are in the intersections. So we'll link that here in the show notes. It's Rabbi, uh, Rachel Cole Feingold and Anita Silvert, and they have one about an episode about Pippin talking about exactly what you were talking about. So hopefully everybody should go and listen to them and subscribe to them too. Mm-hmm. So Julie, do you have anybody in your life who was maybe one of your early teachers that got you thinking particularly about ethical philosophy or ethics or ethical living? I became an educator on purpose. I always saw that I had a way of connecting to people. I started working in summer camps and keeper school and stuff like that pretty young. And what it was really is that more than just the ethical piece, when somebody let me know that they believed in me and when somebody saw that I was good at something that I didn't necessarily see in myself, that's what it was. To help me foster the belief in myself, to have other people again say, I want to share with you how I see you and I want you to know that you can see that too. More than anything, it was the people and the spaces where I kind of found my own place to shine. My father, my dad, my dad passed away this past May, so I'm also coming up on his first yard site. It's been really interesting. He was a performer. He sang, he acted, he did stand up, he got asked to sing at people's kids' weddings and funerals and all kinds of things. He took a side hustle just for fun as a blackjack dealer because then he basically had a captive audience and people loved him. But growing up alongside that, I felt that I just was always kind of, you know, Mark's daughter, which, by the way, I'm not complaining about. But the first time that I ever got seen as, you know, myself, the first time somebody ever like complimented me on my singing, because I didn't think that was something I could do. There were a lot of things I didn't think I could do because that was what my dad did. And I was just so used to that. So... I'm just grateful for the people in my life today, you know, my tribe, my, my girls, my, my husband, my everybody else, the people who will say, okay, so this is what you think about yourself. And let me show you another perspective too. Thank you. Well, thank you, Julie, for getting together. Thanks for the invitation and for sharing something that's so special to you. I think that now I just really need to go back to the beginning and just fully binge again because I think that I have reached the end of Netflix. So it's it's time to start over. <laughs> that's it for another installment of Tove.
We know there are a lot of ways you could spend this time, so thank you for spending it with us. We'd love your feedback on the podcast or your ideas. You can email tove, T-O-V, at tovegoodplace.com or connect at tovegoodplace on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm John Spirasavet at RabbiJS3 and RabbiJohn.net. And thanks again to Julie Levine for joining us today. If you'd like to follow up on Ecclesiastes or do more exploring of any of the ideas and texts we discuss on the podcast, check out the show notes for this episode or the whole website at tovegoodplace.com. Thanks again for listening. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.